0: Ladies and
1: gentlemen, welcome to the Guide to Existence. I'm your host, Gabriel Horan, and today we're going to explore the Torah portion called Truma. Truma means an like a uh, to lift up, but it's essentially the mitzvah of Truma is to take a portion of your belongings and to give it away. And technically speaking, the actual word truma is to give something to like a priest, to a Kohen. Kohen one of the tribe, there's a mitzvah for when you have money or produce, specifically produce or, or, um, or um, uh, livestock, to give a certain portion away to the kohanim and also to the levim. There are two tribes that, were, that didn't own land in the land of Israel, and they were supported through the Jewish people. So, the word truma means to lift up, but literally means to make, like, it to give a portion away. So, this week's part begins with two perplexing ideas that I would like you, to, you guys to ponder. Daber el ben Israel. And God said to Moshe, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, Ve'yihu li truma, and take for me truma. Take for me an offering from all of the Jewish people whose hearts inspire them to um, um, whose hearts inspire them take for them my truma, my offering. So question number one. The expression take take for me Truma. Does anyone have any problems with that phrase? Take for me an offering. Says God to the Jewish people. Anyone? Tatiana, what's weird about take for me an offering? God wants the Jewish people essentially to give. In this week's Parsha, we're about to build something called the Mishkan, which is the prototype for the temple essentially is a what's called in English a tabernacle. I don't know what that is, but it's basically a sanctuary uh, that that traveled with the Jews throughout the desert and eventually became permanent in the temple in Jerusalem. So right now the Jewish people are being commanded to take to give all sorts of precious items for the construction of the tabernacle, which was made out of gold, silver, copper. Special types of wool and linen and different types of animal skins and special wood and oil and Inside this tabernacle. We're about to build the ark of the covenant Where the two tablets are going to be placed we're going to build a special table That was used in the temple the menorah the famous menorah that was lit in the temple every day and the coverings of the tabernacle, and these rods with which you use to carry them, and the walls. And this is the construction that's taking place in this Parsha. And right now we're being commanded to give a donation. All the Jewish people are asked to give a donation. So now I'll read it again, and you tell me what's problematic. Speak to the chosen Israel and tell them, take for me a contribution.
0: Anyone? Why?
1: So it actually says that from anyone whose heart inspires him to give. So it's it's an offering. It's, a, it's, it's voluntary. But you just said something, Tatiana, in your choice of words that was very different than the words the Torah uses. Do you want to say it again, what you just said? You can't really force someone to do what? So you, oh. And what did the Torah say? Yes. What's the what's the opposite of give? Oh, take for me an offering. Not what should it have said? Give to me an offering. Ah, that is question number one. Okay. It's it's very puzzling language. It should really say everyone should give to me an offering, not take from me an offering. Okay.
0: Okay. Okay. So isn't that still giving?
1: So, who's who's the one that already owns it? Hashem or us? Hashem already owns it? There's actually a Mishnah in Perki Avos that says, Tain lo Give to Him what belongs to Him, because you and everything you have belongs to Him. But that doesn't explain to me, how does that explain the word take? Then there's no taking, meaning... It's already his, so it's really just ceremonial that I'm giving it to him, so to speak. Maybe, maybe that's your point. Maybe it's not, it's not really giving. He already owns it. Okay, good, good point. Let's, let's come back to it. Next, it goes through all the different types of precious stones and metals and woods and everything and materials of the Mishkan. And then it says, Ba'asu Migdash mikdash b'shelchanti Build for me a sanctuary. And I will dwell in them questions comments. what should it have said it it says the plural them in them but toham problematic okay those are two questions with which we will begin and hopefully come to some answer so. Let's step back and discuss what is the purpose of this temple. What do we need a temple for? Why do we need a temple? Is having a temple an ideal or is it unnecessary evil? Is God's mission, a plan, original plan that there should be a temple? Do we need a temple? We don't have a temple today. What's the purpose of a temple? To congregate. Okay, so so that's it. okay, a play a meeting place. That's a, actually excellent because it actually is called the Ohel Moed, the tent of meeting. Excellent. So that is a that's that's a pretty good answer. It's a, it's a meeting place, but why do we need a meeting place? Like, why does God require that? Like, we can meet in the desert around a campfire. Why do we need a structure?
0: Well, well, what's a sacred place, actually? Why? Why is that?
1: Okay certain rules but but again i want to ask you what why do we need what does it mean a holy place what does that mean
0: (laughs) Uh uh-huh well one second do you mean
1: to tell me that there's more spirituality in the temple than there is Anywhere else? Is God more is God more in the temple than He is in, say, the bathroom? What do you say? Oh, ah, so God is everywhere. Shem is everywhere in everything. There are certain places where it's easier to access. Excellent. Well put, Tatiana that is there are certain places where we can connect to his presence more than other places not to say god's not in the bathroom god is in the bathroom but if you were to meditate on god in the bathroom that would lower your your awe and reverence for god so therefore we have certain places that are more um auspicious or more i forget the right word but more um Awe inspiring that will help to bring us, bring out that connection and to uplift that connection. But really, Hashem is everywhere. So, why does Hashem need a place? Why does God need a house? So, the Talmud tells us, why did Hashem create a world? There are a couple of different answers to this question brought down in Jewish philosophy and Kabbalah. But essentially the theme is uh, one and the same. That the answer given in the Medrash, which is especially discussed in the Hasidic texts, especially Chabad writings, the Tanya, is that Hashem desired lasos vira batachtonim Hashem wanted to make a dwelling place below. That Hashem created a world where he is hidden so that we can reveal him in the darkness of the physical world. He gave us the keys and the tools and the mission of finding him in the darkness. It's like a cosmic game of hide and seek. But he wants to live with us in the lowest level. So that's, that's answer number one. Answer number two is that Hashem wanted Really similar, but Hashem wanted to reveal himself to us in a way that we had to earn that revelation and connection. That God wanted to give us the greatest possible pleasure of connection to Him, connection to the infinite, connection to perfection, connection to oneness. But He wanted us to earn that connection by perfecting ourselves and achieving godliness and perfection within ourselves. So that's answer number two. But going back to this answer that Hashem wanted a dear but talk to there's Hashem wants specifically us to build a home for him in this world. He wants to be present in our life. And if you think about it, the the significance of a home. Right, I I I've said uh, in the past Tishabbat time that when you're when you're uh, dating someone it's casual. You know, like when you're together, you're dating, but when you're not together, you each have your own life. When you move in together, When you live together, when you build a house together, you're married. You're now one unit. Now, even if you're traveling somewhere across the world, your home is still behind you. It's not that you need to be together. It's that the home now is an anchor in this world that ties you together. So I want to discuss a little bit of what took place in the temple and the significance. But let's start with the following Point from the Ramban, Nachmanides, that uh, the Talmud explains that basically the whole Mount Sinai story and the Exodus was was basically a dating love story. That God and the Jewish people met in Egypt, and we started dating, and we dated for 49 days as we journeyed through the desert, and then we arrived at Mount Sinai, and at Mount Sinai we got married. There's a very interesting um, piece of Talmud, which I will share with you. The Talmud says as follows in Tractate Shabbos on page, uh, one second, on page 88, says as follows, that it says in, uh, in two weeks ago on the, in the Parsha, it says the Jewish people camped under the mountain. And the Talmud says that we see from this that God lifted up the mountain over the heads of the Jewish people. And the significance of the mountain being lifted over our head is twofold. One source says that Hashem held the mountain over our head like a wedding canopy, like a chuppah, and he got married to us under the mountain. The other source in this Talmud, piece of Talmud says something actually quite radically different. It says that God held the mountain over our head and he said, if you accept the Torah, great. But if not, I will bury you under the mountain and it will be your grave. Now, that's very problematic. Why is it so problematic? Does Judaism believe in forced marriages? No, you're not allowed to force someone to get married. In fact, a marriage is only kosher if both parties consent. So how can you force someone to marry you? How could God force us to accept the Torah? Additionally, there's another problem with this. The commentaries point out that we learned last week, last week's Torah portion, the Jewish people said something incredible, revolutionary statement that was said at Mount Sinai. Does anyone remember what the statement was that we learned last week? Two words, Nase v'nishma. Nase means we will do, and nishma means and we will listen. Now, does anyone have a problem with that phrase? We will do, and we will listen. It means essentially we'll do what you, the commandments, and the other is, an, and we'll listen to what the commandments are. What should it have said? And right, you got to hear first before you can do. So the the commentaries go crazy explaining that Talmud says that this was the greatest. Statement of the Jewish people, because it says in the in the Gemara that Hashem went to all the nations of the world and offered them the Torah before he offered to the Jewish people, and every nation said, first question was, what's in it? And God told them what was in it, and they're like, nah, not for us. We can't, we're not into that. You know, like stealing, no, we, we, we stealing is our livelihood. We 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 can't not steal. Adultery, what do you mean? We get all, that's what we do. Murder, we live by the sword. But the Jewish people didn't say what's in it. Instead, the Jewish people said, we'll do whatever it is, and only later will we learn what's in it. You hear that? So the Jewish people said that at Mount Sinai. We'll do and we'll listen. So then what's the question based on this this piece of Talmud that that I just showed you? We'll do and we'll listen. We, We accept it. We accept the Torah. So then, what's problematic with the statement I just shared with you in the, in the Talmud? Jewish people said, I do. I'm in. Anyone? We just said, the second piece is that God lifted the mountain over our heads and said, if you accept the Torah, great. If not, I'm going to crush you. great question. Not, I mean, the week before, the, a minute before, they accepted it already. Why Why do you have to threaten us? We just said yes.
0: Wow. Well, what do you mean? The first time was their choice?
1: Wow. Excellent. So the Gemara actually says this is a great defense that if the jewish people ever stop keeping mitzvahs and get you know god gets upset at us we can just say what do you mean it's we we didn't you forced us but but Tosmos, the the great medieval commentary the grandchildren of rashi the even greater medieval commentary ask steph's question and they say if, the, if they just said nasay binishma they just said we're all in so why do you have to force them So, the Talmud continues and says something that's relevant to the time period that we're in. Today was Rosh Chodesh Adar, the first of the month of Adar. And Adar is the month of the holiday of Purim. So, we are getting close to the holiday of Purim, which is an incredible, incredible, mystical holiday, which we'll talk about. Um... It's happening, normally it happens 15 days into the month of Adar, but this year we have a special treat. We actually have two months of Adar this year, because this is a leap year, or a uh, an extra month, where we have an extra month added to the, the Hebrew calendar. So we're going to celebrate Purim in 45 days from today. So the Talmud says that at that moment, the Jewish people did not really accept the Torah, they were forced. But many, many years later, they would accept the Torah again, this time without being forced. When was that? Purim. The miracle of Purim that took place thousands of years later in the Persian Empire, when the Jewish people were about to be annihilated by the one of the, the first Hitler in history, Haman. And we miraculously survived was a time when the Jewish people actually got married to God again by choice. So all this has to be tied together because it's a lot of loose ends. Why do we need to be forced if we already said I do? And why is it that in the future we accepted the Torah for the right reason, so to speak, at the time of Purim? So let's go back Please remind me to answer these questions. Let's go back to our Parsha. Says the Ramban that we got married at Mount Sinai. And the very next stage is to build a house together. To move in. So we got married to God and then we have to build a home for God. So the Ramban says that the purpose of Mount, of, the, of the sanctuary, of the tabernacle, is to bring the inspiration and the excitement and passion of our wedding day that took place at Mount Sinai with us into the rest of our life we're literally moving in together and it's a beautiful beautiful thing so that's the purpose of the temple is that we should always remember this mini Mount Sinai it's that we're going is going to be the focal point of our lives where we will have direct connection to our spouse so to speak So how do we do that? And and in fact, the Torah calls a home, a mikdash ma'at, a miniature tabernacle, a miniature sanctuary. So the temple is a miniature Mount Sinai, and the Jewish home is a miniature temple. And and it's a beautiful idea. And all the things that we do, really, it happens to be on Shabbos. A lot of the different things we do on Shabbos correspond to the stuff that the, the, the the services that the priests did in the temple. They lit candles, we light candles. They had a special table that had special chalas on the table. We have chalas on the table. Right? Um we there was salt on the on the altar. We have salt always on the table. There was wine on the altar. We have wine on the table. And uh, there's a special connection on Shabbos husband and wife, which corresponds to the the, the connection between Hashem and and the the priest, the Kohen in the temple. So how does one hold on to the excitement and passion of the wedding day? I know we talked a little bit about it last week, Steph, I put you on the spot. Um, So how do we hold on to our inspiration? Because inspiration doesn't last. Inspiration has an expiration. What's the Torah telling us? How do we keep that light and that fire and that passion of the first time of that moment of love at first sight, the honeymoon phase, the passion of Mount Sinai. So the answer is by building a house together. What do I mean by building a house together? How do, what's the glue that builds a house? The answer is what's this? what is the f- most important ingredient in love?
0: Foundation, what's the foundation
1: of love? That's what I'm asking. Oh, giving. And the word, the word giving in Hebrew, ahava, comes from the root word hav, which in Aramaic, which is related to Hebrew, means to give. So it's brought down that the word love means to give. You don't love, you don't give to the person you love. You love the person you give to. That giving is what builds love. That's what binds two people together is learning to give them. I said to one of my clients today, I I, I, I see uh, some therapy clients on on Wednesdays, and my client today was talking about, you know, some marital issues she's having with her husband. And she said, you know, sometimes like we used an example of making supper for him. She said sometimes she just doesn't want to do it. And I said, and you know, sometimes she does it and it's a gift of love for him. And sometimes she doesn't want to do it. And she said, she feels like that takes away from the relationship because she feels negative about it. So I said to her, wait a second, which is a greater expression of love? The times you want to do it and do it, or the times that you don't want to do it and do it. The greatest gift you can give to another person is doing something Even when you don't want to, because you love them. That's an expression of love. When you do it because you do want to, that's an expression of loving yourself. Loving another means you do stuff for them even when it's not convenient. So, giving is the glue. And if we look back at the beginning of the Parsha, take for me a contribution. Why does it say take for me a contribution? So one, one of the great commentaries on the Talmud points out the following statement that for a marriage to take effect between a Jewish marriage, between a man and a woman, there has to be an exchange of something, which we customary do use a ring, something of monetary value. And in order, for, like literally, like um, there are stories I just heard yesterday of kids that go to like a, like a co-ed Jewish school and they learn about this, that there's a certain formula for engagement where you give something of value, man gives something of value to the woman, she accepts it and he says, behold, you were engaged, married to me and that there's stories of kids that, that did that in high school and then they're like, they're married and they have to get divorced. <laughs> so So be careful, don't try this at home. <laughs> but um, what's the significance? So so there's one exception to the rule. The rule is that a man has to give to the woman something of monetary value. Why? Kabbalistically, the man represents the energy of giving. The female represents the energy of receiving. And the man has to give something of monetary value to the woman. A double ring ceremony is not kosher, according to Jewish law, according to most opinions. Because that's not that's not the point. The point is the man has to give something to the woman because he's essentially... Taking a certain uh, legal um, ownership, uh, legal responsibility to provide for his wife. That's actually what's happening at the wedding ceremony, and the wife has also obligations to the husband. But the legal business is that the man says, "I am going to provide for you," and so he gives something of value to her, which signifies um, a certain change in. It's complicated, but. Um, Putting that aside, there's one exception to the rule of the man giving something to the woman. And that is if the man is like really famous. Like imagine like a movie star or something. In that case, the woman can give something to the man. Why do you think that is? In order to have a kosher wedding, the woman has to receive something from the husband.
0: So, but why does she get to give to him then? Why is she giving to him? But he has everything.
1: (laughs) So, think about it. If the goal is that she has to get some sort of benefit, in order for the marriage to take effect, she has to get something of monetary value. So, you ever hear these stories of like rappers who post on social media, like, who wants to buy me a pair of shoes? And like hundreds of people start like sending shoes or volunteer or bidding to buy the shoes for the guy. There's a story like that. You can Google it. I can't remember who it was, but it happened. So there's this in general, we get pleasure from, from getting, but there's actually a, a, a greater pleasure in giving than getting. And the, for someone to give to someone special, that's actually an honor for the person giving, right? Imagine if you can give a ride to your favorite musician or actor or the president asks for a ride in your car. Wow. What an honor. Of course I'd be honored. to. So the exception to the rule is giving to someone special, someone really, really special. Then even giving to them is a form of receiving. So when we give to Hashem, that's the ultimate taking the great the most you can take in this world is the stuff that you give away famous story of a of a uh, a very very rich man a uh, jewish man who in his will said he, he said that he wants to be buried in his socks and according to jewish law you cannot be buried wearing clothes And his children ask tons and tons of rabbis, can we find a way to honor our father's wishes? Nope, no can do. And the day of his burial, he was buried like regular, according to Jewish law, not wearing socks. And at the funeral, the lawyer shows up with a letter from their father. And they open up the letter and it says, you see, I can't even take my socks with me to the next world. The money that you have is money that will someday go to somebody else but the money that you give is yours forever. The charity that you give, the good deeds that you do, those are yours. No one can ever take those away from you. If you put money in the bank, there might be a stock market crash. There might be inflation. It might get spent, it might get stolen. But if you give it to charity, it's it's eternal. The stuff we give is the stuff that lasts. And psychological studies have shown that giving is much more impressionable than taking. They did a study where they gave two control groups $5. One group they said, go buy something for yourself. The other group they said, go buy something for someone else. And at the end of the day, they checked in, how was your day? The group that bought something for themselves, bought like a coffee, Starbucks, and they forgot about it by the end of the day. The group that bought something for someone else remembered that experience the entire day and felt good about it. So it's real. The greatest taking in this world is giving. So the main work that took place in the temple was to bring was to bring sacrifices, donations, and sacrifices literally sacrifices. The 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 idea of an animal sacrifice. The ramban says is taking something valuable of yourself. In fact, the animal represents your body and you're you're giving it up. You're giving away of your livelihood. You're giving up of yourself. The word sacrifice in in Hebrew, carbon, literally means to bring close because by giving, you become closer. And the whole act, the whole purpose of building the sanctuary, make for me a a sanctuary and I will dwell in them says one of the great commentaries the al Shekh, great uh, Kabbalist in Sfat, says, "I will dwell in them refers to the heart of every Jewish person. Build for me a sanctuary that I will dwell in you in your heart. The goal Shem wants us to, to build a dwelling place in this world, where is it inside us? Hashem wants to be inside us. How do we bring Hashem inside us? By giving. By doing acts of service. By giving sacrifices. By giving charity. By learning to build a relationship with Him through the act of giving up of ourselves. So that, I believe, is the message of the temple. Now, just to, to, to return to the idea that we started with, that we mentioned about the mountain being held over our heads, which represents the chuppah, the wedding ceremony, and also represents God's threat to crush us if we don't accept the Torah. Why do we need to be threatened? We just said, I do. And the answer, I believe, is that the I do that we said at Mount Sinai was not a real I do. In fact, it was a forced I do. It was almost as if God was forcing us. Why? Because the inspiration was so powerful God was so revealed in our lives, it was impossible not to say yes. We didn't have free will. We were essentially forced. At the same time, when when the Jewish people were essentially, we were forced to accept the Torah because Hashem said, that I do, that you're saying now is not going to last. The inspiration you feel right now, it's not It's not going to continue. You also need to be forced into this marriage, because a marriage that's just based on inspiration is not going to last. A marriage has to be based upon commitment, it has to be based upon rules, a Jewish wedding contract. Do you know what it is? It's just a bunch of obligations. It's financial obligations. If the husband doesn't provide for the wife, then he owes her a certain amount of money and they get divorced. And it's like, it's so uninspiring and yet people frame it and put it on the wall because they don't know how to read ancient Aramaic. But if they did, they would not put that on the wall. It's quite embarrassing to have that on the wall. But the whole marriage ceremony is essentially one of rules and commitment because what you're saying is I do, not because I'm inspired. Now I'm inspired, but someday I won't be. Someday I'm going to lose the inspiration. And that's when the marriage begins. The marriage begins when the inspiration ends. When the romance and the excitement goes away, then the marriage begins because then you could do stuff for each other for the other person and not for yourself. So when you don't want to and you do it, that's when the real love begins. And what happened at the time of Purim, which we begin celebrating now for the next two months, is that Hashem was totally hidden. It was the opposite of Mount Sinai. There was no revelation. There was no fire. There were no fireworks. There was no thunder and lightning. It was just Hashem revealing himself to us through the hidden coincidences of this world. Without seeing him, we still said, I do. And that's real love. Real love takes place when we do it even though it's not clear. And we stay in the marriage, even though we're not sure it's the right marriage. We, we wanna make it right. How do we make it right? By committing to continue to give through the hard times, through the darkness. The word Adar this month has a double meaning. The word Adar is related to the word Adaret, which means a cloak. It's the f- darkest month of the year in some way. Because it's the farthest away from Pesach. The month of Nisan is the month of miracles. But we just went all the way around the calendar. Okay, we're close to it on one side. But we're far from when you go around in the circle of the calendar. And it's a month of hiddenness, not miracles. It's the opposite of Nisan. Passover is open miracles. Purim is complete hiddenness, darkness. But the word Adar also has another meaning. The word Aleph, letter Aleph, signifies Hashem who is the alufo shal olam. The word Aluf means chief. Hashem is the, the, the chief of the world. And the word dar means dwells. Hashem dwells in the darkness, in the concealed cloak, encloaked in this world, in the nature, in the coincidences, in the hardship. That's where Hashem really is. And the real relationship happens when we connect in the darkness. Just like we said, Hashem created a world in order to have a dwelling place below, literally. And the word dwelling place is the same word as Adar Dira, to build a Dira, that he should dwell with us. So we should all be blessed to reveal Hashem in our own hearts through building a home with Hashem. How do we build a home with Hashem? By giving, by donating of ourselves to those who are less needy, who are less fortunate, more needy, And uh, of literally learning to give when it's hard, when we don't want to. And that is the greatest form of love. Questions? Comments?